Thank you so much for being here this morning. It's been a great time of worship already, and I'm so delighted to be sharing God's Word with you in Mark chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 2 and verse 23. If you're following along in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, that's on page 889. And we invite you, if you don't have the Bible, please take one from the pew rack there and use that to study God's Word. Just a word of note for those of you on Zoom, I want to encourage you uh, to stick around. Uh, I don't know if you've maybe gotten in the habit of uh, tuning out after the message or maybe even after the last song, but I do have some things, exciting things and good things I want to share with the whole church family at the end of the service today and especially with those that are following along online as well. But at any rate, we are in Mark chapter 2 and we've come today to accounts number 4 and 5. Uh, the stories of Jesus and his authority being questioned and and the conflict that was being created between he and the religious leaders over his authority. The first account was about his authority to forgive sins. You remember the healing of the paralytic being lowered down by his friends. And then last week, we saw the religious leaders get all in a tizzy about Jesus associating with tax collectors and sinners. He wasn't fasting according to man-made uh, traditions. Well, this week, the question is about the Sabbath. And there is perhaps nothing except perhaps circumcision uh, that nationally identifies Israel. What it means to be a Jew, to have the Sabbath, is a major, major deal that we're about to study today. But we'll also come to find out that in addition to Jesus' authority over the Sabbath, we come to understand more about God's law, about God's commands, and the spirit of the law behind it, and who is Lord over those commands. So, I will be asking two guiding questions today. These are guiding questions I found in one of the commentaries, and I just, I couldn't go anywhere but here. It seems so appropriate to ask two questions. One, what do we learn about Jesus from this text? And two, what do we learn about God's commands from this text? They're simple, but I was reminded this week as I was preparing that part of our process, part of our preference if you will, for expository preaching, is teaching you how to read your own Bibles. And these are good questions, along with many others, that help you study your own Bible. So I want to show you today that with these good and guiding questions, you yourself, as you study God's Word, can learn from it. And so uh, I invite you to stand with me as we ask these questions of God's Word today. May He speak to us through His Holy Spirit as we read from His Word. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, 
they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him, how they might kill him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. For three weeks now, uh, you've heard Mark chapter 3 and verse 6 at the beginning of the message. Uh, and the, the last two Sundays, I've made a point to, to draw, us, draw our attention to where we were headed. These five accounts all leading to verse 6 in chapter 3, where the Pharisees start to plot with the Herodians how they might kill him. Mark wants us to see the real issue in this text. And the main takeaway, truly, from this text is the issue of Jesus' authority. So when we ask this question, what does the passage teach us about Jesus? The first thing we discover is truly the most important. It is the main point. It's Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority. He has the power to declare the purpose and standard of God's commands. Jesus says so outrightly in verse 28. So then, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. But that declaration is really the conclusion of an argument Jesus is making. It's all brought about because the Pharisees were questioning Jesus about his disciples picking heads of grain as they walk through grain fields. And as we found out, if you've been following along in Luke, uh, yesterday, we actually read this passage in our Bible reading plan. They were eating. They were snacking. Getting a little munch time in there. Now, picking some of the heads of grain as they walked through someone else's grain field was actually not forbidden. Uh, in fact, the, the Old Testament law allowed for that. You know, see a few grapes here. Orange falls over your fence over there. You know, go ahead. Snack away. It's all God's creation. And with the little bit that you pick here and pluck there, no big deal. What was the big deal was the idea of harvesting. Harvesting was specifically forbidden on the Sabbath. So in Exodus 34, 21, we read, You are to labor six days, but you must rest on the seventh day. You must even rest during plowing and harvesting times. So according to Jewish customs, any reaping of any kind whatsoever would have been considered a breach of Sabbath, even that casual pluck or two. So Jesus proceeds to defend his disciples by citing the story of David fleeing from Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 21. He said to them in verse 25 of our text here, Mark 2, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest? And ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions. Now, I don't want you to get 
all hung up if you go home tonight and you open up 1 Samuel 21 and you begin to read that text. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought it was Abiathar, the high priest at the time in 1 Samuel 21, was Ahimelech. Well, of course, we know Jesus knew that. And so what is the explanation? Well, there are two potential explanations. One is that by chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, Abiathar is the only one left. The only priest left because Saul comes in and kills all the priests in in Nob. And so, generally speaking, the idea was that David was associated with the priest Abiathar. He was the guy that you associate David's life and ministry with. And so the translation in the CSB, I think, hits it right on the head. It was in the time of Abiathar the high priest. It was around that time of David's life and ministry. Another explanation would be that the way Mark uses it is almost technical, um, citing Jesus and saying, have you never read? And then Jesus gives what would be, I'm equating it to something like our section headings. You know, like, uh, for example, he does this in Mark chapter 12, verse 26. When he's talking about the dead being raised, Jesus says, haven't you read? So that same kind of formula in the book of Moses, the passage about the burning bush is just, here's the section heading, the passage about the burning bush. And what Jesus is saying is, you know, if you go back into 1 Samuel, that section about Abiathar, that overall portion. So whatever the case, we know that Jesus is referring back to the time of Abiathar generally. The bottom line is, that's not the point. That's not the point. It's not a mistake. It's just not the point. The point Jesus makes is that technically, technically, what David did is not lawful. For anyone except priests. He uses the phrase of the Pharisees. They ask, why do your disciples do what is not lawful? And he points out that David sanctioned what technically is not lawful. And scripture seems to look approvingly upon his actions. Incidentally, when we get to the next account, we'll see Jesus also using that same phrase. Is it not lawful? What is lawful to take place? At any rate, the point is not to justify one Sabbath infringement with another unlawful infringement. The point is not the what. The point is the who. The point is not the what in this text. The point is the who. As R.T. France has put it, the logic of Jesus' argument implies a covert claim— to a personal authority, at least that as great of David. He's saying, David did that. I have the authority to do this. So verse uh, 28 then builds on that claim. If David could do something that was not technically lawful, but fell within the intention of the law, how much more could the Son of Man, with his authority, do so? And so verse 28 reads, So then, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He has the power to declare the purpose and standard of God's commands. But Jesus not only declared his authority over the Sabbath, the next six verses show that he demonstrates his authority over the Sabbath. Verses 1 through 6 teach us about Jesus and his authority But they also teach us something about Jesus that we don't often stop to consider. And that is Jesus' anger. Jesus' anger 
Jesus takes exception with those who would use God's commands to keep others from God's mercy. Jesus takes exception with those who would use God's commands to keep others from God's mercy. Now, having just read through this account, you're now aware of the background of what causes Jesus' outrage. It appears as though the Pharisees in this text, they are lurking like prowlers in the bush, like behind the hedges, just watching and waiting to attack and accuse. In fact, the the word they use of accuse in verse 2 is a legal term. They want to bring a legal case against Jesus. You see, the only uh, life-saving medical treat, only life-saving or medical treatment that would save somebody's life to prevent their death would have been regarded as legal on the Sabbath. In verse 2, the, the phrasing in the original language uh, points out that it is the Sabbath day. It would have read something like this. They were watching him closely to see whether on the Sabbath, he would heal. This is the way the, the Greek language reads. It just kind of puts it out in the front of the phrasing. It says, they were watching him closely to see whether on the Sabbath he would heal. So this was all around what he would do on the Sabbath day. And this man, having had a shriveled hand from birth, would mean that his impairment was not life-threatening. He'd survived thus far, so the expectation would have been for Jesus to delay any sort of healing or demonstration of mercy until the next day. Now, Jesus could have kind of gone over to the guy, right, and like winked at him like, hey, catch me over at Peter's house afterwards, and we'll take care of this thing for you. Right? That would have been an approach that Jesus could have done to, you know, go about healing this man. But instead, Jesus says, stand here. Stand right in the middle. The, the footnote in the CSB says in the middle. It is literally in, in our midst. It'd be like me going down by Sean or Steve and say, all right, stand up. And going and standing right there in the middle and drawing attention to this healing. Jesus is going to have a showdown. In, in fact, this is the only time in the book of Mark that Jesus heals someone who didn't ask him to heal them. Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority, and he's using this as a case, as an example of his approach and his authority. Jesus knows the wicked intentions of the Pharisees, and he is going to directly confront their hypocrisy. Because you know what else Jesus knows? He knows that this very day, on the Sabbath, the Pharisees are going to devise a plot to kill him. On the Sabbath, the Pharisees are going to plot to do evil. And so it makes his question in verse 4 all the more chilling. Notice the tie back to verse or to the previous section. He says to them, is it lawful? All right, you want to go? Here we go. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? And they were silent. And this question reminds me, and it reminds other commentators, of Deuteronomy 30 and verse 15. See, today I have set before you life and prosperity, 
death and adversity. This is, this is really a simple choice. Life and health and healing or death and, and wickedness and evil. And Jesus puts this question forward in such a way, it's impossible for the Pharisees to answer. Obviously, you can't say it's lawful to kill or do evil on the Sabbath. Obviously. Except that's the very thing they are going to do. But if they said, oh, it's okay, it's lawful to do good or to save a life, then they would have undermined their whole approach to the Sabbath. And they would have undermined the basis of their objections to Jesus and his authority. And verse 4 tells us they were silenced, which would have been an embarrassment in this sort of debate. But it was verse 5 to which we were going to key in on here. Jesus looked at them with anger. I took note yesterday. That's unique to Mark's account, not in Luke's. Jesus looked on them with anger because of their hardness of heart. R.C. Sproul comments that that Greek word used is not the word for Jesus was annoyed, or Jesus even had righteous indignation, or gay. The Greek word behind it would have been wrath. Like, he's really upset, really furious, outraged that the religious leaders cared more about their traditions than the welfare of a suffering human being. It reminds me of Jesus when he takes exception to the Pharisees on the practice of korban, I don't have time to explain all of it, but Corban was basically uh, a way to work around the idea of honoring your father and mother. It, it was using a command of God and twisting it to deny mercy towards your parents. This is a similar idea that, that Jesus takes exception with those who will use God's commands and twist them to avoid showing the spirit of the law, the heart of the law. Micah 6 verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love mercy or kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Notice how humility, humbling oneself under the authority of Jesus, is so related to this idea of showing justice and demonstrating mercy to other people. This was the requirement of the law. The Sabbath was made for our benefit. And there's mercy that can be offered to someone. Extending that mercy is well in keeping with the spirit of the Sabbath. But take note that Jesus' anger is also mixed with pain. Mark tells us Jesus was grieved in his soul at the hardness of their hearts. He had compassion even for them, the very ones who were about to plot his death. I want to come back to verse 6 at the end of the message by way of application. So briefly now, let's turn to that second question we were considering today. What does this passage teach us about God's commands? Well, first of all, we see that the commands of God have a good purpose. A good purpose. God's commands are for our good. Jesus told them in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It was a gift. The Sabbath, we, we studied this in the book of Exodus, it was a gift 
to keep us from ourselves, from wearing ourselves out, wearing our servants out, wearing our fields out, treating God's nature and God's um, creation with respect, and then giving ourselves rest after the pattern which he demonstrated for us even all the way back to creation. But the rabbis had turned the gift into a burden that required like your full-time attention to not transgress one of these Sabbath traditions. As I was reading, I found the examples of like if you tied a knot in your shoe by accident, you had to leave it there all day because untying the knot in your shoe would have been unnecessary work. Or if you had a tear in your garment, we're like two weeks in a row here with garment tears, I guess. But if you tear your garment, you can have one stitch. So like big hole, I guess you put it right in the middle and just like kind of sort of keep things together. One stitch. But any more stitches, extra work. It goes from the legalism to absurdity. God's commands are for our good. And it's true of all of God's commands. True human flourishing occurs when we are obedient to God's laws. And it's not just for ourselves. It's for others too, which is the second thing we learn here is that God's commands have a good prospect. A good prospect. That is, they give us the opportunity to do good for others' sake. In verse 4 of chapter 3, He said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. In in Matthew's gospel at this point and in Luke's gospel on two other occasions, when this issue of Sabbath healing was raised, Jesus argues the principle uh, with the Pharisees that the relief of an animal suffering is allowed within some certain limits. So how much more should you relieve human suffering? When we understand the the, the heart of the Sabbath and we obey the heart of it, our obedience will benefit others, show mercy to others. God's commands are for our good, and they have a good prospect in that they are for the good of others. The Pharisees were missing this element of love your neighbor as yourself. They had the strict obedience to God down, so to speak, but they had forgotten to love your neighbor as yourself. Thirdly, this text teaches us that God's commands have a good Lord. Again, Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We can come to the conclusion that God's commands are best understood by listening to Jesus. We humans are not the ones who get to decide the spirit of the law. Jesus is Remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. You recall on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's um, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, and God says, listen to him. Listen to my son. And so, in fact, we have Jesus giving interpretation for us. For example, in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, and when he listens, or excuse me, when he speaks, We need to listen to the way he interprets for us the commandments of God. And sometimes they're hard. They're difficult. Jesus actually heightens our awareness of how sinful our hearts really are. 
but we are to listen to him. Jesus is Lord over all of the commands. But there is good news for us. When we shift our mindset now to application, I want to work in reverse. We talked about Jesus' authority. We talked about God's laws. I want to make application to what do we do with God's laws? What do we do with God's commands first and then come back to what are we going to do with Jesus and his claims to authority? So first, I hope that by way of application that Christians that are here today are encouraged to greater obedience to the commandments, greater obedience to God's law because we understand they're for our good, the good of others, and have a good Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Notice his authoritative stance to say, they're my commandments. I'm Lord of the commands. John wrote in his first letter, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. I love that because it reminds us that one of the benefits One of the promises of the new covenant is that God's law would be written on our hearts. That we would truly understand and be obedient from the heart to the commands. Jeremiah 31 and verse 33 says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul says in Romans, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He later says in Romans 7.22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In other words, Christians have the great privilege because of the new covenant of going from a place where the commands are a burden. They show us like a mirror how utterly incapable we are of being obedient to them. When we understand what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, we are convicted to the core and recognize no one could do this from that place to the place of, by faith, trusting in a Savior, trusting in Jesus, and going to a place where the the law becomes our delight. How is this? Because Jesus, by his death on the cross, pays the penalty for our commandment breaking. But more than that, as Pastor Allen has been sharing today, Jesus, by his life and by his obedience, acquires for us an and gives us a righteousness, exchanges our sin for his righteousness so that we stand before God justified and declared righteous, not by our works. It's from that position of faith in the Savior that we see the law of God as a delight to us. We walk in his commands, and his commandments, as First John says, are not burdensome, for those who have put their faith in Jesus. Paul tells us that Jesus, that Christ, is the end. That means the goal. Christ is the purpose 
of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law was meant to point you to Jesus. And your faith in him secures all the righteousness you will ever need to stand before God and makes obedience to the commands a delight because he has written his law in our hearts. So I invite you, if you aren't a Christian, if you find the commandments to be a burden, lay down that burden. Come to the Lord of the Sabbath who desires to grant you mercy and use you as a vessel of mercy for other people. But this leads me to the last point of application from today's message, which is really a return to the main point of the text before us, and that is the authority of Jesus. So the question is, what will you do with Jesus and his claims? Listen, the Pharisees rightly understood Jesus's claims to authority. That he was taking, for example, the divine prerogative to forgive sins in the case of the paralytic lowered down on the mat. That he was obfuscating, he was going around man-made tradition, so to speak, by associating with tax collectors and sinners. He was rejecting their self-serving interpretation of the Sabbath by authoritatively declaring himself of greater authority than even King David. He was Lord of the Sabbath. And in response... Did they submit to his authoritative claims? Did they recognize Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and of all God's commands? Well, let's think. What would that have required of them? It would have required humility to admit that their ways and thinking were wrong. Repentance and submission to Jesus and his authority it would have resulted in a loss of standing in the eyes of the religious crowd, a loss of power, prestige in the religious circles to humble themselves and submit to Jesus. But they would not budge an inch. Their hearts were hard, as Mark says. They were dull. They were uncircumcised in their hearts. Romans 2 says, circumcision is of value if you obey the law perfectly, but if you break the law at all, even your circumcision, that which you pride yourself in as a Jew, call it Sabbath keeping, results in uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised, a Gentile, keeps the precepts, the heart of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded or counted as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn the Pharisee, the you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, And circumcision is a matter of the, get it, the heart by the Spirit, not the letter of the law. His praise will be from God, not from man. Don't miss that last phrase. Whose praise are you seeking? 
Whose praise are you seeking? Someone here today might be worried what it might mean to confess that they need to repent and trust Christ. Because everyone around you thinks you're already a Christian. It would be humiliating to confess that you've been doing this all because mom and dad want me to go to church. To, to say that you've been doing this for the sake of your husband or your wife, faking it that you're a believer because you want others around you to think better of you. Whose praise are you seeking? Keeping the spirit of the law is something only the Holy Spirit makes possible. And perhaps the Spirit of God, even today, is convicting you to humble yourself and the fake quasi-religious exterior and confess that God has broken through your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. I invite you today not to walk away as a modern-day Pharisee, more concerned with keeping up appearances than recognizing Jesus' authority. But then notice in verse 6, the Pharisees are not the only party interested in killing Jesus. Verse 6 says, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him. Now, who are they? The CSB Study Bible explains Herodians were Jewish supporters of Herod the Great and his family. So specifically, it would have been Herod uh, Antipas in Galilee. The Herodians' partnership then with the Pharisees is ironic because the Herodians supported the ever-increasing secularization. They call it the Hellenization, the, the making of everybody like a Greek. Let's all be the same. Let's work towards this. They were for the political expediency of Hellenization in the area, secularization of the world. But the Pharisees weren't quite that way. They were truly religious. They wanted religious reform. But what drew them together was this unlikely unification of diverse political and religious factions over Jesus' authority. He was going to upset the status quo for those who wished to see the area Hellenized. When we come to find there are those who reject Jesus of, for political reasons, I feel like today this is perhaps another insidious danger that we need to be watchful of for nominal Christians. It, it used to be like this. It used to be going to church would put cultural capital in your cookie jar. Does that make sense? Like, you, you draw from your cookie jar and you put things in. It's like, it used to be a good thing to go to church because polite society around you would have thought well of that. So, um, go buy your car from so-and-so. He, he's a good church-going man. And that would have added to your cultural standing. I would argue not so today. Especially not in a, in a church with commitments to historical, biblical values it may actually work in the reverse uh, for you to be known as one who associates with the authoritative claims of Jesus on your life. It reduces your cultural capital and your standing in the world. So we see now where 
these two factions unite. It's all about what others think of you. It's all about what they'll think if you submit to the authority of Jesus. For the Pharisees, it's about keeping up appearances, power, and position within religious circles. For the Herodians, it's keeping up appearances, power, prestige in secular circles. And Jesus' claims to authority shatter both prospects. Friends, the claims of Jesus demand a response today. Will you submit to Jesus as Lord and believe his claims to be able to forgive sins, welcome you to his banquet, provide a life of flourishing for you and others by obedience to his commands? Or will you, like the Pharisees or the Herodians, reject his claims and seek to find ways to silence Jesus's authority in your life? This Lord's Day The choice is really as simple as the way Jesus put it to the Pharisees or the way it was in Deuteronomy. Do you want life and good? Or will you, in seeking your own self-interest and the praise of other people, plot a way to silence the authority of Jesus in your life? He who seeks to save his life will lose it for my sake. But if you want to keep up appearances in this world, in the end... You will lose your life. So I invite you today, choose life. Choose Jesus. He is Lord, whether you submit to his authority or not. And by way of warning, let me remind you, not even the Pharisees and the Herodians were able to silence Jesus for more than three days. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, these these words from your holy word come to us with resounding power and authority, claims on us, claims on our lives, claims that demand a response. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that all across the room you are working by your Holy Spirit in various ways, in the lives of various people, and each heart different each circumstance unique, each person dealing with you and your claims. I pray you would prick the hearts of the Pharisees within us and among us. Help us to humble ourselves to your authority. Lord, I pray that you would prick the hearts of the Herodians within us and among us that we would not seek the praise of the world around us, but be humble and submit to your authority. Lord, this Lord's Day, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you that although we could not keep the law, you gave Jesus to be obedient to the law on our behalf. Although we could not keep your commands and deserve punishment, you gave Jesus to die and shed his blood on our behalf as a propitiation, as a satisfaction 
of your just wrath and anger towards sin in our lives. Father, it makes us all the more grateful for the hope we have by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to your word alone, and for the glory of God alone. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.